Welcome to a special series on the Acquisition Talk podcast that gives you an audiobook tour of my research project titled Program to Fail, The Rise of Central Planning in Defense Acquisition 1945-1975. to I'm Eric Lothran of the Baroni Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. You can find this book for free and over 1,300 blog posts on my website, acquisitiontalk.com. While the planning, programming, budgeting system sought to create a unified, centrally controlled plan, it simultaneously sought to outsource the actual execution of those plans to a single prime contractor. In the past, the military services focused on maturing components based on standard interfaces and integrated new systems around them. Defense personnel took key roles putting their hands in the grease to develop technologies, giving them the insight and control over design choices and even the ability to arbitrate disputes between prime and subcontractors. Yet the philosophy of systems analysis and PBBS pushed back on the modular concept of weapons and advocated for designing systems from the start as an integrated whole. As General Electric's chairman Ralph Cordonier observed at the time, quote, Where the need was once for a large number of general purpose components and subsystems, the demand is increasingly for complete systems and even super systems, end quote. As a result, each program was its own, self-contained stovepipe, often using proprietary technologies that could not communicate with other systems. The reality had become that in the 21st century, weapon systems cannot interoperate despite all the focus on jointness. For decades, DoD has been seeking to utilize modular open systems architectures to create plug-and-play models that will increase competition has largely failed to implement the ideals. Monolithic program budgets have led to monolithic contracts that have thwarted these technical goals. However, if DoD can reform its budgeting process, it can also unpack systems requirements and modularize contracts alongside technically separable components. This is important because different elements of a system have different development cycle times. For example, advances in material sciences and infrastructure move slowly, perhaps on the order of 5 to 10 years or more. Aided by Moore's law, electronics can cycle through new models every couple years. Software is even faster, capable of deploying new updates potentially every day. Defense officials cannot afford to slow down entire weapon systems to the slowest common denominator and must instead move in asynchronous times to maximize technological progress. In this episode of Program to Fail, the relationship between budgeting and contracting processes will be made. It finds that prematurely defining entire program life cycles also makes its way into the contract, which constrains the adaptive learning process. A properly functioning contract process with industry requires a flexible budgeting process within the government.
Perhaps the most significant effect of the comptroller's rise in defense is the replacement of local control with control at a distance. Whereas local control is usually intimate enough to be evaluated qualitatively, control at a distance is typified by measurement of cost, schedule, and technical performance. The PBBS not only increased the scope of control at a distance within the Department of Defense, pushing decision-making up the chain. Moreover, it was biased against in-house development capabilities, favoring outsourcing work on weapon systems to a single prime contractor. The increased emphasis on high dollar contracts enlarged further the scope of control at a distance, where contract language determined what must be done and how it would be evaluated. Prior to World War II, the services had a robust in-house technical capability. Army production centered around six arsenals at the Ordnance Department, the first established in Springfield, Massachusetts in 1794. The Navy had its own technical bureaus and owned a large network of shipyards. Except for wartime surges when private industry supported production, the service's in-house capabilities were the centerpiece of U.S. weapons expenditures. For example, between 1866 and 1883, two-thirds of Navy ships were constructed in government yards. Even though Congress pushed Navy procurement towards the private sector in 1883, and it did the same for the Army in 1916, it wasn't until after World War II that lasting emphasis was placed on outsourcing. The top administrator of the entire government R&D effort was also in favor of outsourcing. In his famous 1945 essay, Science, the Endless Frontier, Vannevar Bush recommended contracts or grants be used to conduct all of public research. Quote, it should not operate any laboratories of its own, end quote, said Vannevar Bush of the federal government. His opinion turned mainstream. The Air Force, for example, argued successfully for their independence from the Army by promising not only to adopt practices from private businesses, but to outsource most of its weapon systems work to industry. Without a legacy bureau system to weigh it down, the Air Force had by 1953 already outsourced 90% of its R&D budget. Even the Navy, which had a strong research-focused organization since 1923, quickly increased its share of outsourcing. After World War II, the Navy outsourced 65% of research, though the figure for development was somewhat less at 40%. In 1946, the Army's Ordnance Department had already allocated two-thirds of its R&D to private sources. The post-war decline of Army and Navy in-house capabilities accelerated in the 1960s. The Army Technical Services lost their statutory role in 1962 and later scaled back operations, including shutting down Springfield, Watertown, and Frankfurt arsenals. For Navy bureaus, they had already lost control of R&D in 1958. The Navy abolished its bureau system in 1966, though the remnants continued to be a source of innovation in missiles, lasers, and other important areas. The transfer of weapon systems expenditures to organizations external to the Defense Department brought issues of contracting to the fore. When the actual operation of doing experiments or bending metal occurred in-house, the executive may act very much like a military commander in the field. 
he can express his desires or lay out his demand function and command action. Depending on how he judges the results of action when compared with his updated expectations, the executive or commander can reward or punish his subordinates. This method of administrative control is often called after-the-fact control. When defense executives seek production from the open market, whether it be firms, universities, or nonprofits, they must use market exchange mechanisms characterized by contracts. A contract seeks voluntary agreement between two or more parties. The exact responsibilities of each party, as well as methods of evaluation, are detailed before action is taken. A similar method of administrative control is wielded by the controller using program budgets. Both contracts and program budgets use the method of before-the-fact control. Professor Fred Thompson compared the two methods with respect to internal administration. Quote, Before-the-fact control necessarily takes the form of authoritative mandates, rules, or regulations that specify what the subject must do, may do, or must not do. The subjects of before-the-fact controls are held responsible for complying with these commands, and the controller attempts to monitor and enforce compliance with them. After-the-fact controls are executed after the subject, either an organization or an individual, decides on and carries out a course of action, and, therefore, after some consequence of the subject's decisions are known." End quote. The congruence between contracting and program budgeting made the two natural bedfellows, the enabler being a unifunctional project office structure. The program budget demands that organizations find perfect alignment with the program structure, which Frederick Mosher had shown impossible for any significant organization. These forces, coupled with an expressed desire for private production, led the Air Force to favor the system's project office and a single prime contractor. Increased reliance on industry required different forms of contracting than those historically permitted by Congress. Contracting before World War II was almost entirely of the fixed-priced, sealed-bid, procurement auction form. In such an auction, the government advertised its requirements publicly. Interested parties responded with proposals. Advertisement and unbiased appraisal was viewed as a democratic means of source selection. It also had the benefits of holding the supplier to reasonable speculations in the cost, schedule, technical trade space. The supplier bore the full risk of not meeting the contract obligations. The uncertainty of R&D contracts made them legally ambiguous because terms could not always be met in the manner pre-specified. Instead of taking firms to court for contractual default, the bureaus more often punished firms which did not expend resources in an appropriate way by not awarding them future work, and in some cases bringing the work in-house if needed. The repeated interactions between a diverse set of government and industry participants led to significant reputational effects. Contract specifications, as written before the fact, mattered less than the purchaser's satisfaction when viewed after the fact. The weapon system concept put emphasis on pre-specified plans that all components could integrate with the greatest technical advancement 
in the shortest possible time. The system's approach then required detailed specifications of future components for ensuring integration. The increased scale and complexity of the task strained the fixed price contracting regime mandated by legislation. In 1947, Congress added 11 broadly worded exemptions to the use of advertised fixed price contracts in the Armed Services Procurement Act. Further, the legislation authorized the use of cost reimbursable or cost plus contracts. Cost plus contracts shielded contractors from risk by having the government reimburse the contractor for all auditable costs related to the project, as well as a fair share of overhead expenses. On the downside, cost plus contracts discouraged cost control. Companies also expense the buildup of future capabilities to the current contract. The expense control problem resulting from negotiated cost plus contracts seemed to remove the competitive incentives from the defense industry. Perhaps the most pernicious problem of cost plus contracts to the PBBS was that it encouraged overly optimistic pricing. Contractors could buy in on major weapon systems with low bids and then get fully reimbursed for overruns. Systematic use of foot-in-the-door strategies distorted the trade space and crowded out future investments to cover impending cost overruns. Cost plus contracts were especially pervasive in missiles due to the high-risk nature of the work. The contract type accounted for over three-quarters of all missile contracts in 1960. As a percentage of the total DoD contracts, Cost Plus had steadily risen until it peaked at 38% in 1961, the year McNamara took office. At the time, nearly 40% of the DoD budget went to cover cost overruns. McNamara sought to turn the tide on Cost Plus contracts. Over the course of five years, he cut the total proportion of cost-plus contracts by three-quarters, down to nearly 9%. A memo from McNamara to President Johnson in 1964 claimed that, quote, At a minimum, our analyses indicate that $0.10 cents is saved for every dollar shifted from a cost-plus to other forms of contracts, end quote. The contracts let for weapons acquisition did not, however, return to the old model of advertisement and firm fixed price. Sole source awards continued and the contractors were forced to share more in the risk on a fixed price incentive basis. Adding incentives to the contract structure seemed to cure the expense control problem. Using an incentive contract, both parties agreed to a share ratio whereby suppliers retained a proportion of underruns as profits and pay for a proportion of overruns as losses. A common share ratio is 80-20, where the government retains 80% of the risk and reward, while 20% is retained by the contractor. In other words, for every dollar the contractor went over the cost target, the contractor would pay 20 cents and the government would pay 80 cents. Because of the stakes involved, the incentive approach put a premium on target cost negotiation. It also required auditable accounting for all expenditures. This made outcomes dubious as to whether incentive contracts actually led to better outcomes because contractors would simply bake in higher prices into their target cost. In 1965, a new form of contracting emerged. The Total Package Procurement, or TPP, 
attempted to acquire an entire program in just two big fixed-price contracts, one for development and one for production. The scheme put even greater emphasis on the government's ability to validate target costs. It was the brainchild of Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Installations and Logistics, Robert Charles. The intent of TPP was to alleviate the problems of unrealistically low buy-ins where the contractor were expected to make up the revenue on change orders or procurement. The TPP induced realism by exposing the contractor to three risks. First, commitment to the price and performance of production articles before their development. Second, total systems performance responsibility. And three, the extreme length of commitment. The TPP's pilot program, the C-5A cargo aircraft, experienced the exact problems that the TPP was trying to avoid. Lockheed's winning bid came in at half the cost of the next competitor, Boeing. Despite the C-5A being, from an engineering standpoint, a straight-line extrapolation based on proof and technologies, substantial cost growth ensued. The TPP supposedly provided contractors freedom from government oversight to develop and produce the best system within a negotiated price. It attempted to more clearly place responsibility for performance with the contractor. Assistant Secretary Charles promised that the C-5A would, quote, get away from fuzzy notions that the government and industry should be partners, end quote. For Charles, entangled responsibility led to severe adverse results. Yet for the C-5A, the government did not isolate its responsibility. The Air Force levied excessively detailed requirements, suppressing the contractor's freedom to explore improved solutions. Charles later agonized about the problematic requirements. Quote, We wanted a transport which only had a few basic requirements, such as cargo area, cruise speed, range, payload, takeoff, and landing distances and conditions, and navigational capabilities. But it took us over 1,500 pages to say this. In reply, the five competitors sent in 240,000 pages. End quote. Just two years after the Air Force had called the program a miracle of procurement, one of its own officials, Ernest Fitzgerald, disclosed a $2 billion cost overrun on the C-5A. For his efforts, Fitzgerald was fired. He later told Congress that, quote, I think Lockheed was confident that they were going to get bailed out. I think they never believed from the start that they were going to be held to their contract because other people were not then being held to their contracts, end quote. While an analyst at the Office of Systems Analysis said that the C-5A was one of the major successes of systems analysis in the Department of Defense, Senator William Proxmire criticized the C-5A program for severe cost overruns and performance defects. He charged the Air Force with acquiring it in a scandalous way. Despite his tough stance, Proxmire did not blame the TPP scheme. He said, quote, Would it have made any difference if the C-5A contract was written or awarded any differently? I don't think so, end quote. A report on military spending prepared for the Congress in 1969 disagreed. Quote, the total package performance in other large contracts should be broken down into smaller, more manageable segments, end quote. The General Accounting Office and the Fitzhugh Commission report followed up with their own cautions about the TPP, 
with the latter recommending an outright prohibition. Addressing the contracting issues was Rand economist and future Nobel laureate Oliver Williamson. When considering prevailing analysis on contract controls, Williamson noticed a conspicuous omission. Analysts believed that the government had two main ways of attaining successful weapons systems without the guides and restraints provided by the market's invisible hand. The first was to use direct controls, characterized by participation in the contractor's internal operations, for example, PERT, or Earned Value Management. The second way was using incentives characterized by rewarding desirable performance and penalizing unsatisfactory performance, for example, incentives contracts. Williamson, however, saw a third option, breaking the contract down into smaller segments, in 1965, he complained that contract analysts don't even consider task definitions as a means of influencing contract behavior. Two years later, Williamson concluded that, quote, neither the manipulation of profit incentives nor the monitoring of contract progress can be expected, in any dependable sense, to yield significant improvements in contract performance as long as the specification of the task remains unchanged. From a contractual point of view at least, the systems approach to weapons procurement, which has prevailed since 1953, appears to be distinctly suboptimal." End quote. Using mathematical models, Williamson showed that adjusting the share ratio changes the optimal contractor behavior with respect to negotiating target costs. Under sufficient uncertainty as to an objective target cost, contract incentives induce higher bids to mitigate the risk. Uncertainty also means that the government is not positioned to refute the substance of the proposal. The principal difficulty, Williamson wrote, quote, in evaluating the effect of incentive contracts on performance rests on negotiation of target costs, end quote. Many observers understood the importance of establishing an objective target cost from an analysis of historical data, but rather than discussing smaller contracts for certain components, the weapon systems approach focused cost analysis on a single contract to execute the entire development program. That vastly increased the amount of uncertainty built into the contract. Williamson suggested major systems contracts be partitioned and contracted separately, thereby narrowing the scope of each contract task and narrowing the range of an objective target cost. He argued that rather than designing incentives, a quote, more fundamental way by which to improve defense contracting is to decompose the task into technically separable components, end quote. Task partitioning provides a practical method for arriving at a contract cost target of objective significance. Williamson summarized the manifold advantages of task partitioning. Quote, 1. It reduced the amount of uncertainty and hence increases objectivity in contract negotiation, reduces the felt need for defensibility in administering contracts, and permits more reliable evaluations which in turn, allow cost performance reputation effects to be assigned with confidence. Each of these effects should help prevent excessive contract costs. 
too. It creates a contract environment in which the full potential of parallel R&D approaches can be exploited. 3. It complements R&D strategies which emphasize the need for maintaining options by providing support for work on adaptable components and flexible capabilities. 4. It permits greater competition by increasing the number of eligible contractors. And 5. It lends itself to sales and employment stabilization. End quote. Williamson argued that both the military services and the contractors avoided task partitioning and consequently increased uncertainty, quote, because of the beneficial consequences that each associates with it, end quote. The benefits to both parties derive from defensibility. For the service purchaser, defensibility can be secured if, in the nature of the task, a wide range of outcomes are ex-ante possible and non-uniqueness will result if the task is defined in such a way as to prevent substantial uncertainty. For the contract supplier, defensibility exists when it is, quote, difficult to assess efficiency reputation effects to any degree of confidence, end quote. Large contracts satisfied both parties' interests in making defensible almost any conceivable outcome. Williamson identified four drawbacks to task partitioning. 1. Possible interface problems. 2. Contract proliferation expenses. 3. Sacrifice of scale economies. And 4. Possible time delays. He addressed each in turn. First, he found that for issues of interfacing or integrating components into a final system, these issues have been exaggerated. In the normal course of systems development when the entire work was contracted at once, the prime contractor will then partition tasks across components, but without the option to partition tasks across time. Second, although contracts will be increased in number, they will be decreased in complexity, both at the negotiation and the administrative stages, so that the administrative cost increases for this reason may be kept quite acceptable. Third, Williamson called the economies of scale issue mainly a bogus one, with five quick jabs. He found that economies of scale are not so significant as to be the decisive factor in the organization of the weapons industry. Fourth, Williamson gave credence to the time is of the essence critique and the occasional need for a crash basis through the systems approach, but he did not find moonshots appropriate on a continuing peacetime basis. Williamson looked back on the work of RAND colleagues Klein, Mechlin, and Messlin. He agreed with their perspective. The problem is not one of choosing among specific end product alternatives, but rather a problem of choosing a course of action initially consistent with a wide range of such alternatives and narrowing the choice as development proceeds. This is exactly what Armin Alchin meant when he said that, quote, the essence of a good decision process is to affect the scope of random factors such as to give a good probability distribution of outcomes, end quote. The practical application, as Williamson noted, is overlapping research efforts with regularly placed options. Williamson's analysis sought to reduce and control uncertainty as opposed to harness it as a fundamental aspect of innovation. He did not discuss 
broadening the scope of tasks and delegating authority as Klein and others had. Williamson stated that, quote, my proposal for limiting discretionary opportunities involves restructuring the program by partitioning the task, end quote. He saw task partitioning as a way to better define contract requirements, limit contractor discretion, and arrive at an objective target cost. Perhaps unwittingly, Williamson's plan to partition tasks would move more technical planning out of the contractor's hand and back into a military acquisition system characterized by decreasing in-house capabilities and increasingly centralized decisions. As previously discussed, uncertainty benefits projects in performance aspects due to the unbounded possibilities of innovation. Karl Popper wrote that, quote, The scientific method is not cumulative. It is fundamentally revolutionary, end quote. Achieving a good probability distribution of outcomes depends on expanding task discretion for those at the lower levels because it cannot be predicted in advance which outcomes and whose expectations will prove most successful. Nassim Taleb argued that the payoffs from research follows a power law type of statistical distribution with big, nearly unlimited upside, but because of optionality, limited downside. Consequently, the payoff from research should be necessarily linear to the number of trials, not to total funds invested in the trials. Taleb and Benoit Mandelbrot recommended the 1 over n research policy, which can simply be expressed, if you face n options, invest in all of them in equal amounts. For the defense system of innovation, the 1 over n rule pertains to people and organizations, not ideas. It is a matter of having the right set of structural rules guiding exchange. The set of voluntary choices resulting from local states of knowledge is, in some sense, both random and efficient. The most important innovations occur from ideas that a diverse set of competent observers do not agree on. Otherwise, any idea whose benefit and technical achievement are obvious should have already been pursued. Pursuit of politically agreeable specifications is then an invitation to surprise challenges. Pursuit of non-consensual concepts by independent and responsible decision makers invites surprise payoffs. Peck and Scher described the institutions of successful innovations in a similar way. Quote, When technological uncertainty is substantial, it may be desirable to base weapons programs decisions on something resembling interpersonal confidence rather than, or as well as, on objective analysis. The history of technology is replete with examples of innovations which were supported not because the logic behind the idea was overwhelming, but because someone with funds believed in someone with an idea." End quote. Innovation often results from non-consensual ideas, precisely because non-consensual ideas represent greater uncertainty. When institutions do not tolerate failure, political programs will accept extreme cost risk and must limit performance gains in order to avoid surprises. When quantitative evidence is limited, meaning one, political support is unlikely, and two, the benefits are unknown and possibly revolutionary, then a successful portfolio of projects requires a diversity of investment. This is best accomplished when each participant is also provided broad and alienable budget authority 
as well as an opportunity to build interpersonal confidence with other potentially private individuals advocating for non-consensual ideas. Such interpersonal confidence can only arise in the context of repeated exchanges where reputation effects can be established. Peck and Scherer found that interpersonal confidence allowed for important innovations to overcome political barriers of adequate justification because the service managers and contractors together risk reputation and resources to achieve it. In many cases, the innovations came from the riskiest firms, new entrants to the defense industry, who eagerly sought to build a reputation. In a 1969 compendium of economic papers assembled for the Jackson Committee hearings on the PBBS, Two papers in particular provided insights into exchange. First, future Nobel laureate and longtime RAND analyst Kenneth Arrow discussed social choice theory. Known for his logical mind and mastery of mathematical modeling, Arrow nevertheless arrived at a non-quantifiable answer. Quote, I want to, however, conclude by calling attention to a less visible form of social action, norms of social behavior including ethical and moral codes. I suggest as one possible interpretation that they are reactions of society to compensate for market failures. It is useful for individuals to have some trust in one another's words. In the absence of trust, it would become very costly to arrange for alternative sanctions and guarantees, and many opportunities for mutually beneficial cooperation would have to be foregone. End quote. However, under significant information asymmetry, Arrow warned that an abuse of trust could lead to monopoly rents. Economist Harold Demsetz wrote the second paper of interest. He found that the key test for determining whether an exchange improves welfare is if it is voluntary. If both parties consented to the agreement, then they must find some advantage to it. He wrote that, quote, the test of voluntary consent is the filter that separates and selects efficient resource allocations from inefficient ones, end quote. Only where the test of voluntary consent is lacking did Demsets concede recourse to cost-benefit calculations. Yet when government is called upon to solve market failures, it encounters two problems. First, unless the state is authoritarian, it must incur costs to secure the consent of the many. Second, by treating all individuals as cost-benefit analysis uniformly, it abstracts away from the peculiarities which matter to individual choices. In other words, the government encounters a greater likelihood of error. It is illuminating to examine why interpersonal confidence resulting from repeated exchanges plays such a large role in weapons acquisition. The criterion for success in any exchange is whether or not both parties felt better off as a result. Did the purchaser feel gratitude toward the supplier for making a good use of his resources? And if so, was the supplier rewarded? Equally important to any system of exchange, however, is the assignment of punishment for harm. Contracts embody a system of negative evaluation. Either the supplier met the requirement as written before the fact, or not. The criterion benefits the purchaser as it allows for a precise and accurate measurement of outcomes that forces the supplier to submit reasonable proposals. 
An equally important point is that unspecified attributes don't come for free. Ultimately, the purchaser cares about the capabilities and not the physical attributes. As weapon systems become increasingly complicated, the number of attributes which must be pre-specified and evaluated increases as well. If unmeasurable or unforeseen attributes are complements of the specified attributes, then no problem exists. However, if they are substitutes, then the supplier can provide a system that in no way meets expectations while fulfilling all contractual requirements. Consider the supplier who found one or more of the requirements were ill-conceived given new knowledge discovered in the production process. The situation often occurs because the contract assumptions do not turn out to be realistic or even desirable from the purchaser's point of view. If the supplier delivers on all contract requirements, he clearly has not violated the agreement. A symmetrically informed observer may, however, step back and ask whether the supplier acted properly with respect to the exchange and whether or not he deserves reward or punishment. Because the contract comes at the expense of the taxpayers and its deficiency could cause harm to the common security, the supplier did not act properly with regard to the deployment of its resources by delivering on the requirement even if it created a deficient system. Yet had it done differently, the supplier would have taken a loss for either greater expense or breach of the contract requirement. Was the supplier blameworthy for his prudence? Was the supplier blamable for an entirely legal action, even if it put the interests of its shareholders above the purchaser's interests and indeed above the national interest? The matter demonstrates that the terms of the contract were loose and vague and made more so by treating their judgments as precise and accurate. From the supplier's perspective, he was praiseworthy for meeting contractual requirements on time and on cost. However, from the observer's perspective in the third party, the supplier was blameworthy for not acting upon the harmonized sympathies around the shared goal as opposed to the contract requirements which they imperfectly represented. Using a contract to procure innovation, then, takes a loose and vague matter that requires after-the-fact judgment using updated information and forces it into a system of negative evaluations according to the requirements written before the fact. The different forms of evaluation do not agree in all circumstances. After-the-fact controls are flexible with respect to time and the accumulation of knowledge. Before-the-fact controls, however, are rigid and invariant to time or context. When asymmetric knowledge problems can be alleviated, the worst deformities to before-the-fact controls are corrected. If the purchaser knew as well as the supplier whether a contract requirement was proving technically infeasible or that it would create negative unintended consequences, the purchaser prefers to renegotiate the contract so that the assumptions which connect the requirements to his ends incorporated updated knowledge. At the limit, if transaction costs and knowledge transfer are zero, the contract requirements can reflect a specific application of after-the-fact evaluations at every point in time and maintain their agreement. However, knowledge transfer is imperfect or difficult, and the contract becomes a poor mechanism as it forces evaluations using controls based on potentially incorrect expectations. Defense officials have sought to directly achieve knowledge symmetry by requiring regular cost, schedule, and technical reporting. 
Earned value management, for example, reports cost and schedule by technical component, attempting to provide near real-time information on contract progress. As new information arrives and changes the purchaser's perspective of propriety, the purchaser may choose to exercise his decision rights to amend the contract requirements so that the eventual outcome with respect to contractual requirements conforms to his subjective judgment after reviewing updated information. Cost plus contracts in this light allow for continual updates to target costs without needing expensive contract renegotiations. With a stream of detailed contract information available, defense analysts have attempted to approximate the idealized outcome where both parties to a contract have identical knowledge. In such cases, the contract can with little trouble be modified such that the terms of the contract will approximate what an informed third party would estimate to be proper given access to the most comprehensive and timely information. The ideal, however, can never be implemented because no report can fully capture specific information of time and place that the supplier holds. Even if it could, it could not be guaranteed that the information would be interpreted in the same way as the supplier. When the government attempts to duplicate the supplier's knowledge and continually redirect the contract, it is tantamount to actually directing the firm's capital itself. As Friedrich Hayek wrote about similar proposals, quote, All this involves planning on the part of the central authority on much the same scale as if it was actually running the enterprise. This division in the disposition over resources would then simply have the effect that neither the entrepreneur nor the central authority would really be in a position to plan. End quote. When attempting to obtain and exercise knowledge, defense officials first incur substantial investment costs to duplicate the knowledge outsourced to private firms, and then they incur transaction costs to renegotiate and modify contracts, and finally they risk having misinterpreted the information or having received misleading information. In order for the purchaser to ensure that he receives justice with the fulfillment of a contract requirement, he will have to incur large transactual costs for knowledge generation and contract modification. Ronald Coase drew similar conclusions in his landmark 1937 essay, The Nature of the Firm. Coase wrote that, When direction of resources in a contract must be decided later by a purchaser, relative efficiencies can be generated by internalizing those resources to avoid transaction costs. He wrote that, quote, Owing to the difficulty of forecasting, the longer the period of the contract is for the supply of the commodity or service, the less possible, and indeed, the less desirable it is for the person purchasing to specify what the other contracting party is expected to do. A firm is likely therefore to emerge in those cases where a very short-term contract would be unsatisfactory. End quote. Like Oliver Williamson, Armin Alchin, and Burton Klein, William Meckling was a RAND analyst who later made significant contributions to economic theories of the firm. Meckling used Coase's concepts of transaction costs to explore the relative efficiencies of internal administration versus markets. He determined that both processes successfully co-located decision rights and knowledge. Quote, When knowledge is valuable in decision-making, there are benefits to co-locating decision authority with the knowledge that is valuable to those decisions. There are two ways to co-locate knowledge and decision rights. One is by moving knowledge to those with the decision rights. 
The other is by moving decision rights to those with the knowledge. The process for moving knowledge to those with decision rights has received much attention from researchers and designers of management information systems. But the process of moving decision rights to those with relevant knowledge has received relatively little attention in either economics or management. End quote. The government's attempts to use information reporting systems, such as earned value management, has produced an ineffective mix where the government official attempts to outsource production knowledge but continue to demand information necessary to exercise decision rights. The matter is made more difficult because defense production requires specific knowledge that almost by definition is difficult or impossible to aggregate and summarize. In effect, Meckling argued that government procuring agencies should either provide more decision rights to the contractor or to acquire in-house capabilities necessary of exercising those decision rights. Theories of the firm suggest that for uncertain ventures using highly specified knowledge or capital assets, the government should internalize resources to avoid transaction costs associated with loose and vague contracts. For relatively mature production processes, the government can use tightly coupled contracts where the requirements are somewhat stable. While Demsetz and Williamson gave this view merit, and indeed it was the predominating acquisition approach before World War II, the economists believe the better option is to lower transaction costs to contracting. Stated simply, this can be done by partitioning tasks, matching the level of discretion with the level of uncertainty, and allowing reputation through repeated exchanges to hold more sway than legal reprisals. However, government in-house capabilities remain vital to building technical knowledge that allows for reputational effects, because no impartial and symmetrically informed observer can exist for reference as a judge. Both private and public managers know how difficult monitoring can be. As economic activity moved away from reproducible goods towards advanced technology, contracts became mired in uncertainty. The proper course of action cannot always be articulated before the fact, but is discovered along with the growth of knowledge. The realities of the innovation process proved counter to assumptions made by defense officials, who instead put greater efforts into defining requirements and setting objective target costs. As Ronald Fox later observed, Quote, McNamara did not foresee that setting realistic target costs vital to the success of fixed pricing would prove well nigh impossible, end quote. If tightly coupled contracts could not incentivize particular outcomes, then new strategies for acquiring innovation had to be devised. Thanks for listening to this introduction to an acquisition talk series called Program to Fail. The Rise of Central Planning in Defense Acquisition 1945-1975. Stay tuned as new episodes are released. For more information, or if you'd like to provide feedback to me, please visit acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again.